Hey, I have, uh, I have a few announcements. It's March 22nd and it's 2017. That's not a surprise to anybody. If it, if it is a surprise to you, then uh, wake up. <laughs> right, you've been sleeping all day. Um, my son, Gabriel, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed one over there. He's 16 years old yesterday. We're going to barbecue at the Stevens house tomorrow. If you're looking for an excuse to come by, uh, it seems that most of the church has moved to our cul-de-sac during my absence. All I had to do was go away for a while and everybody moved into the neighborhood. Uh, We're also going to have an impromptu celebration of Gabriel's 16th birthday. Um, On the note of new neighbors, right? The Browns are now much closer. The Moloch's now much closer. And there's still a few houses for sale in the area, right? Uh, I also wanted to uh, thank my brother Steve, my friend Steve. At 65 years old, Steve just uh, completed a seven-nation tour uh, with me. Uh, It was more than 40,000 miles. Uh, It was 87 hours in economy class on airplanes. If uh, How many of you have been to India in this room? We flew enough to go to India five times. Um, we went to the Istanbul airport more than 12 times. Uh, I can't begin to count the hours of layover, flight delays. We even had an emergency landing in Warsaw, Poland. Yeah, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. I was detained by the police in six of the seven countries that we went to and more than 20 times and Steve was with me through all of them so uh, when you get a chance hug elder Steve he's put some miles on here recently yeah he did most of it with an iPhone stuck to uh, the side of his head talking to some young lady I don't know know. Um, we're going to discuss loss for the lost tonight that is our title Uh, There have been a few important things that have occurred aside from just the missions trips. When we're talking about loss, L-O-S-S, for the lost, L-O-S-T, you might need to know a couple things that are background story for us tonight. In uh, October 15th of 2016, I received a a prophecy from a friend. It was a redirection of of my life. literally said to me, your hourglass is turning over. Uh, You need to plan your life in three-month increments. What I've told you before is true, but the hourglass is turning over. I I was like, okay, you know, thank you. That's that's sweet. And then like any other prophecy you don't know what to do with, I went about my day. I was in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee in November. So one month later, uh, on the 15th, And the Lord began to speak to me from Isaiah 49 uh, about the region of Persia. It was exactly 30 days after he told me the hourglass was turning over. That was monumental for the Stevens. Um, It meant that our lives would be intertangled with the uh, Eregenas and many others for years to come. And that we would plant generational ministries in the Middle East. Well, I was in Indonesia... On February 21st, when I got to hear the heartbeat of 
my son who is going to be born. So when you're thinking about how that works, um, what an incredible thing. It had been 20 years since my first son was born. Uh, I can stand here today and say um, I couldn't be more shocked, couldn't be more surprised if I woke up and my head was sewn to the carpet. When the Lord turns over the hourglass, it's literally like we started life over again. Hey, it is never too late with the Lord, ever. If you're sitting out there and you're waiting for unfulfilled promises, if you're sitting out there and you just, you don't know where your life is headed, rejoice in the fact that you don't know where your life is headed. Because with a single word, He can change that. Back to lives in the Middle East. On March 5th of this year, a 17-year-old named Toprak was the first to be born again in Antakya, Turkey. It's amazing because one of the things that Isaiah 49, please put Isaiah 49, 24 on the screen. Uh, One of the things that Isaiah 49 asks is, can plunder be taken from warriors or captives rescued from the fierce? We had been standing for most of our Turkey trip miles from the border with Syria. And one of the towns we were in, Achilles, we were... Detained four times in a single day. We were two and a half miles from a historic tank battle that was occurring. And the Turkish secret police believed that there were U.S. military on the ground three miles from where we were standing. And um, it wasn't good for us. In the town that we were in, people were waving ISIS flags. And 900 plus had been detained thus far in the year. In that location. But do you know what else happened? Not far from there, a few hours drive, a young man named Toprak got born again. He went from curious about Americans to interested in Christianity to praying to Jesus to completely healed and life transformed. Then he brought his mother to meet us. I believe these folks will be instrumental in the years to come. Now, the reason that I say this is that didn't come without risk. And it started with a question. Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives rescued from the fierce? In other words, are you willing to go if loss is involved? Are you willing to risk it if there is, in fact, something to risk? Or do we sit on our salvation in spiritual safety deposit boxes all over the United States and just proclaim blessings to one another? It's a good question. Because most never risk anything for the gospel. I want to tell you that in a day of the gospel of gain and greed, where you're told if you give $100, you will receive $700. Where you're told that if you follow Jesus, you will be happy, healthy, and wealthy in this life and have heaven in the next. In a day when everything that is being preached about the gospel is either wrongly worded or from a wrong spirit. It's important for you to hear the truth. The call of Christ is a call to lose everything. It's a call of loss. Risk assessment is to be done prior to salvation because the call of Christ is a call to loss. Not just a call to the lost, 
but a call to lose. And none of us like that. We don't like that attitude. We don't like that thought. In fact, the thing that drives most people's lives is a fear of loss. Why do you have insurance? For fear that something's going to happen that is beyond your means to pay for. So fear of loss drives insurance sales. Why do cars with certain emblems on them sell for so much more money than cars without that emblem on them? For fear that your neighbor won't think you're as important as you think you are. I mean, there are so many ways that this occurs. Not only if you follow Jesus, may you not end up more prosperous, not end up better off, not end up in a state of bliss, you might actually end up in this life far worse off than if you had never followed him. I don't know how many of you heard, but I had a court judgment that didn't go my way this week. So I stand before you today at 42 years old with five children that have been born, one that is on the way, and two grandchildren that are older than my last son will be. And I have never been worth less. I have never owned less. I have never had less materially. And I've never been happier because I can say the loss that I have experienced, I've experienced in the cause of Christ. I know people that have everything that they think they ever wanted and are still extraordinarily sad people. Turn with me to Genesis 12 and verse 1. Are you all going to be okay this evening? You know, we have this history, you and I, together. We didn't build this church by me standing up and telling you fairy tales. We didn't meet on the basis of selling some kind of strange investment to you. Our relationship has always been the same. We would search the Word for the truths of the Word, and no matter what the Word said, we would embrace its truth. We would rather see our lives change than have unchanged lives and need to adapt the word to us. So we are honest with one another. Boldly honest. You know, that's hard on a friendship sometimes. But if your friendships require you to lie to each other, what kind of friendship do you have? Pastors ought not be paid entertainers. How many of you would go to a physician who lied to you? Doc, ignore what you see on that MRI. Doc, ignore what you see in that blood test. Tell me what I want to hear, and I'll pay you five times my copay. How would that work for you? The truth is, is you go to the doctor because you're paying him to tell you the truth about your situation. Have you ever imagined an illness? I mean, you were sure after reading this, you had it. I mean, we used to play this game in sales. We'd pick one guy on a sales force and all day long, you're not looking well, Mandy. Man, you, you might want to go get that checked out. I mean, you, doesn't she look kind of green to you? And see how long it took us to get Mandy to go home from work. I know that's ugly. I used to be a very ugly person, right? We did that kind of stuff all of the time because the truth is whatever you think about the most, it, it has a way of affecting your life. You go to the doctor to tell you whether or not you do or do not have that issue. 
You know why you encounter the Word of God? So you get a sober look at your own life. So that you get the raw, unfiltered truth about you. I hope we'll receive that together today. Are you in Genesis 12, 1? Where are the rest of you? In, in the back corner of the room. Caitlin, y'all in Genesis 12, 1? Riley as Marie, you in Genesis 12, 1? Amen. She put her hand over her mouth. I'm not speaking in church. You can speak in this church. In Genesis 12, 1, the very heart of the law, the beginning of the friendship story of God, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country. Look at your neighbor and say, leave. Leave, <laughs> leave your people. Come on now. Leave your country. Leave your people. Leave your father's household. Is that not a story of loss? Does that sound like a man who is accumulating? A man who is building a nest egg? A man who has put around him all the comforts and accoutrements that he could find? To leave your country, to leave your people, to leave your father's household is a call of loss. If you look at Jeremiah or Ezekiel, you can write these down. Jeremiah 15, 20. Ezekiel 3, 8 through 9. You're going to find out that these men, both of them, Jeremiah is told you're going to go prophesy to them about captivity. And they're not going to listen to you. But I'm going to make you like a bronze wall that nobody can defeat. Oh, well, thank you. I'm called to a people who are going to hate me. I'm called to give them a message they won't like. In the blessing in the call is that you will make me strong enough to overcome? Yes and amen. Ezekiel, you are called also to tell people about their sin, to tell people about their captivity, their great offense to God. And they're a stubborn, stiff-necked people. They're not going to listen to you, Ezekiel. But here's the silver lining in the cloud. I will make you more unyielding than they are. The call of the gospel has always been a call to loss. It's always been a call to adversity. Always a call to difficulty. Because you travailing through that difficulty speaks one unresounding message. He is worth it. Oh, come on. He is worth it. Shall not the Lamb receive the reward of His suffering? He is worth it. How about Daniel? In Daniel 7, 15, he gets so troubled... In his spirit. <laughs> I, Daniel, was troubled in my spirit and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. Daniel saw things that no other man saw. He looked forward in time and saw the kingdoms of the earth and how they would play out and what it would mean for the saints of God. And he collapsed under the pressure. One time he not only fainted but was nauseous. He was trembling. An angel had to set him up to his feet. Do you know why? Daniel received a call to loss. He knew how much it was going to cost the people of God to do the work of God. Man, you don't hear this when you turn the TV on late at night. You don't hear, send me $100 and you may be broke all month, but that $100 will have gone to something that is noble and that will outlive you. You don't hear that message. What you hear is if you send $100, then God will make you rich. Well, if it works that way, friends, why do the televangelists not send you their money? If what they're saying is true, they ought to be sending money to your house that God would make them rich. 
This is a gospel of greed and a gospel of gain. And maybe you recognize that. But has it seeped in our life that we serve the Lord so that we will have a better life? I mean, there's a book, Your Best Life Now. We make fun of it all of the time. Pastor Colgate, Selling Lies to the Nation. Will you only serve the Lord if it ends up that you are better off than before? Well, how did that work for the apostles? How did that work for any Christian in the first four centuries? It's worth thinking about, don't you think? Because the moment Toprak became a Christian, one of less than a few thousand in the city that he's in, he became a target. In most of the places that we were in, in East Turkey, they had heard of a Christian, but they had never met one. They had no idea what a Bible was. One policeman took my Bible from me, confiscated it, opened to a passage in it, and then demanded to know what it said. As God would have it, an English teacher is passing by, and he says, tell me what this says. So the man tells him, and then speaks it out loud so the crowd can have it. And he said, explain this to me. So I did to the whole crowd. It was Asa's prayer about how the mighty cannot overcome those who rely upon the Lord. And those who rely upon the Lord are always saved. It was great. It's almost like God's in control of these things. In Indonesia... They opened my Bible and asked me if it was like a Quran. I said, no, it's nothing like the Quran. Well, what is it? He said, it's a book. I said, well, what kind of book is it? He said, it's a book about the fall of man, the restoration of man, about a loving relationship between God and his people. It's a holy book like the Quran? Well, you must not have read the Quran. <laughs> okay, move on. It doesn't matter where you turn, whether Old or New Testament. The Bible is a call to the loss, to loss. Look at Luke 14. Let's pick up there in the Newer Testament to a scripture that some find troubling. Say there when in Luke 14, our youth group beat every other person in the church. That's awesome. There you go. In Luke 14... Verse 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. What kind of crowds? Large. large crowds. And turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father or his mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. What did Jesus say to large crowds? <laughs> he said, You'd have to hate your father and mother to be my disciple. Does that sound like something that builds large churches to you? The background for this is that it was common in Judaism to say this from the Talmud. The bonds between a teacher and a student surpass that between a, a student and their father. For your father brought you into this world, but your teacher shows you how to enter into the world to come. In light of that, do you understand what Jesus is saying? 
He's saying, if you don't place more value on the teaching that I have, on what I'm sharing with you, than your own family members, you cannot follow me. How many people do you know sit in church? How many people sit in this church today that care more about what their family thinks than what God says of their own life? See, the gospel has always been a call to loss. The very first thing that it does is become a sword that separates you from those that you love because they don't like what you're becoming. It's convicting to them. The weekend that I got born again, I got thrown out of my own home by two people that love me and profess to be in Christ. Do you know what my great offense was? Instead of going to the topless bar that weekend, I held a Bible study without asking in their home. Does that seem irrational to you? What's irrational is that the spirit that controls the carnal hates the spirit that is inside the man who is sold out for the Lord. It brings you to a place of loss. I can stand here before you and say so many beautiful things about those that have been raised up and are doing fantastic, miraculous works around the world. But I can also tell you long stories about all those that we have lost because they loved the world. The gospel will separate you. It will cause loss in your life. How about this one in Matthew 16, 24? Turn there. Say there when you were there. In Matthew 16, verse 24, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Does that sound like loss? Take up his cross. Does that sound like loss? And follow me. Where was he going? He was going to his execution. Doesn't that sound like loss? Just to sum it up, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. The gospel is a radical call. To loss. It's a call to depart from your security, from your safety blanket. It's a call to lay every concern aside except what God has called you to do. Man, sitting here in a fired up church, how many of you can say that you've actually done that? That you're walking in that? You know, one beautiful thing about losing everything is there's nothing left to take. <laughs> you know, I got a summons not all that long ago, and I had a choice to make. And I answered the summons because if I didn't answer the summons, it could affect the outcome of the case. About a month ago, I threw a process server out of this church during the service. If you thought I was difficult before, <laughs> what do you think it's going to be like now that I have nothing to lose? Church, a man that has nothing to lose is dangerous to the enemy. Have you ever thought about doing something for the Lord and the first thought that you had that accompanied it is what it would cost you? You're not allowed to think like that anymore. That is pre-salvation thinking. That is counting the cost of following Jesus. Once you have decided to follow Him, all costs are out the window. 
He already owns your life. How can you sit and calculate what you've already given away, what's already been pledged, what is already dedicated for His service? Oh, it's easy to preach these words. It's a little bit different to live them. In Matthew 13, I'm sorry, Revelation 13, what we've done here is gone law, prophets, writings, Old Testament. Now we're going law, prophets in the New Testament. Revelation 13, pick up with me in verse 9. He who has an ear, let him hear. How many of you have ears in this room? Raise your hands if you've got ears. Raise your voices and say, Pastor, I can hear you. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity, he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword, he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. No wonder most churches say, we won't be here anyway. Because they've not accepted a gospel that involves loss. They've accepted a gospel that is of greed and of gain. But the truth is, when you have already decided captivity, Christ is worth it. Death, Christ is worth it. Sword, he's worth it. And you prove that by your actions, you become a powerful Christian. How many of you have ever asked the question, why do all of the miracles happen on the mission field? Anybody ask that? Because it's where all the risk is. When you sit at home with the well-fed, fattened sheep, There's very little risk. You know, we were standing in what I thought was a pretty comical scene. At first, there's two officers. And then, looking at the group, uh, they decided they needed more. So there were four. And then six. And then some standing in the distance and some pacing in front of us. And, you know, the toothpick in the mouth, the slightly bulging gut, the gun in the back, and the pacing back and forth. Finally, they're going to photograph us, right? They're going to photograph us so that we know that they know exactly who we are and what, like we didn't stand out enough, right? So we get together. One of the guys throws a cigar in his mouth. The rest of us, we, we pose for the picture like... Mm-hmm. Guy says, what is wrong with y'all? Sorry? Why are y'all so happy? I said, well, we're Christians. And I, I thought if you were going to hurt us, you would have already done it. So you must love us now, right? You know, it wasn't a few hours later we were sitting in public officials' office eating baklava. (laughs) Church, the world is dying to see the sincerity of your faith demonstrated and your willingness to embrace loss. They're, They're dying to see it. When you think about that, The severity of the loss in your life emphasizes the veracity of your cause. If a man is willing to go to jail for his belief, then you must consider his belief. If he's willing to give his life, then you must consider that he really has experienced something you may not have experienced. When your first instinct is to protect from loss, you're diminishing the cross of Christ. Turn with me to Philippians, the third chapter. Say there when you get there. My household's been sick for days. I I was sick in Indonesia. Got sick again in Romania. 
Apparently it's a bad idea to eat sushi in the mountains and Israel got sick there too. Floated into Malaysia. Uh, queasy. Got home and got full-blown sick again. I'm going to make it through this sermon without throwing up because I love you. The gospel will always cost you something. It never operates from a position of your strength. It will always operate from a position of your weakness so that God's strength can be seen in you. That's what loss does. It gives people the opportunity to see God's strength at work in you. In Philippians 3, a man we all admire very much. Look at what he said in verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God is by faith. He was willing to lose everything that he might gain Christ. That is the exact opposite of a gospel that says if you get in Christ, you gain everything. His gospel was lose everything that you might be found in Christ. Do you hear the inherent contradiction here? Does anyone hear it? Yes. Then we have to ask ourselves, what do we do about a gospel call that is like that? This loss was for a purpose. It was for a new creation, a new kingdom, something that was called Olam Haba by the Jews, the world to come, a world where the lamb would lie down with the lion, a world where children could play by the den of vipers, a world where weapons had been beat into plowshares, where nation didn't go to war against nation, a world that was the kingdom of God on earth. It is what the apostles prayed for when they said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. The loss that we experienced was for the greater good of justice, mercy, and righteousness coming upon this planet. Look at the way Zechariah says it. Turn with me to Zechariah. We would be in the seventh chapter. If I can find Zechariah, jet lagged, not sure what time zone I'm in, old, somewhere between a grandfather and a father. Zechariah, look at chapter 7 and pick up with me in verse 8. And the word of the Lord came again, Zechariah, this is what the Lord Almighty says, administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts do not think evil of each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly they turned their backs and stopped up their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or the words the Lord Almighty had sent by His Spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen. Do you hear that? You ever felt like your prayer was bouncing off the ceiling? Ask yourself, when's the last time that he spoke to you and you did what he said to do? It's a strange thing. 
Most of us read a verse that says, sell all of your possessions and give them to the poor. And we spend the next two hours rationalizing why that could never be talking to us. What a unique, special situation that must have been for someone in a galaxy far, far away a long time ago. Do you excuse yourself from loss, but accept every passage that has to do with gain in the scripture? Do you have a way of making sure that when you read, you will never suffer? Maybe Israel will, but you never will. But you get every blessing that Israel was ever destined to have? Well, then you fit in well with American theologians. But it's not what the Bible teaches. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations where they were strangers. The land was left so desolate behind them that no one could come or go. This is how they made the pleasant land so desolate. Again, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called a city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called a holy mountain. This sums up what the prophets say. When we do not do what the Lord says, it brings death and desolation. When we do what the prophets say, it builds cities of truth and holy mountains upon the planet. Have you ever considered how many thousands, how many hundreds of thousands, how many millions, hundreds of millions? Let's get to the point. How many billions of people there are just like Toprak? They've heard that Christians exist, but they've never met a real one. Ask yourself how many times you can go to Walmart, just pick up your groceries and go home and carry on with life knowing that more than half of the world doesn't know Jesus came for them the first time. And you're sitting here praying that he come back the second time. Can you live with that? No. See, I can't live with that. There's a growing number of people in this church that cannot live with that. We're beginning to burn for the loss, to hurt for the nations. We're beginning to consider that no loss that we could endure is too high when we're considering a lost man being saved. I preached like this in Romania, and one brother who loves me very much got very upset. He didn't have the courage to tell me, so he told his wife, made her promise not to tell anybody, and of course she picked up the phone and called the pastors, and the pastors told me. I got to preach two more times. You'll be able to guess what I preached on after that. He said, you know, Eric is... He's a good man, but he's wrong. There are so many lost people here. We don't need to go there. The thing is, is when you think like that, you don't go to the lost people over there and you don't go to them here. But the man that is concerned about lost people here is also concerned about lost people there. This is just a window dressing for cowardice. This is a skirt that you wear around so that nobody gets to see how much you have Lost. Yeah, think about that for a minute. I meant it as literally as it came out. My next message to the Romanians, by the way, was our women and children are staying here. Safe place in Romania, and we're so thankful for it. We're going to the very front lines. There was a day when there were men in Romania. 
And I'd hope to find a few here among you today. But if you want to stay with our women and children, you can do that. They leapt to their feet. Two came with us. Many more pledged to go on the next trips. And a few of them will make good on their trips. I don't want to speak only to Romanians like that. Church, it is time that we embrace whatever loss is required of us. That we might see lost people saved. It's time to build the kingdom of God on earth. I want you to think about the role of loss in this story. Go to Judges 20. Say there when you're there. Turns out it's easier to preach on activated faith and have people cheer for you than it is to challenge you where you actually sit. In Judges 20, verse 18, the Israelites went up to Bethel and inquired of God. They said, Who shall go first to fight against the Benjamites? The Lord replied, Judah shall go first. Are we pretty clear? Israelites went to go ask, Who should fight against these Benjamites? And what was the answer? Judah will go first. The backstory to this is that a man entered into Benjamite territory. He brought with him his concubine. Men surrounded the two and they wanted to abuse them. They raped the concubine all night until she fell on the threshold of the door dead in the morning. Anybody here get motivated about uh, sex trafficking in Houston? Right? Yeah, I've heard a lot of that. There's billboards everywhere. It's the latest uh, fashionable cause to hop onto, right? I mean, how many of you have actually attended a meeting about sex trafficking? Raise your hand. Look at that number of people. How many of you actually went out on the street with a group to confront folks sex trafficking? Look, you see how the numbers are getting smaller? How many of you went to two of them? How many of you did it for more than a year? Are you seeing this, church? We're among the most fired up you'll ever meet. And do you see how long our commitment lasts? We feel called to fight against the abortion of our unborn unless it rains. And then we feel pretty called to stay home because, I mean, it's raining, right? There'll be another day for that. It's raining. Well, what about the mother that went on a rainy day to have an abortion? See, We need to make sure that we keep our vows. We need to make sure that we keep our vows when it hurts. It shouldn't matter whether Pastor Stevens is in town for your church attendance. It shouldn't matter whether or not I'm here for your behavior to continue as your behavior has always supposed to have been in line with God's Word. Somebody say amen in the house of God. When you consider what happens next... The Israelites go to fight the Benjamites. And who sent them? God did. He even told them who's supposed to go first. The next morning, the Israelites got up and pitched a camp near Gibeah. The men of Israel went out to fight the Benjamites and took up battle positions against Gibeah. If God told them to go and God told them how to fight, what do you expect is going to happen? They're going to win. The Benjamites came out of Gibeah and cut down 22,000 Israelites on the battlefield that day. God sent them into battle and they suffered a terrible loss. You know, it was years before the Allies had significant victories in World War II. On D-Day that we all celebrate, 10,000 Allied troops fell that day. 10,000. Was it worth it? 
22,000 men died on the first day of this battle. Why? Over one concubine. Wouldn't ration, rationale say, hey, one life is not worth 22,000 lives? I mean, wouldn't it be better to have 22,000 people alive than one? But when you're consumed with God's justice, God's righteousness, with the mercy of God to every man, then 22,000 men are more than willing to give their life to make sure that never again would there be a situation where a woman was abused like that in Israel. Where is the holy passion that says, I will give all? See, if we're not willing to suffer loss, they don't get saved. If we're not willing to suffer terrible loss, they don't get saved. The Lord asked us, will you take captives from the fears? Somewhat foolishly. So, I mean, full of hubris and youthful zeal. I said, yes, Lord, yes. And then he called me to make good on my promise. Where are you with that? Will you go if ISIS is there? Will you go if the police arrest you within five minutes of getting off the plane? And when they do, do you decide that you should turn around and get back on the plane? Or do you keep going anyway? I said, you should leave Gillies. I said, no. I said, well, you can't write your petition in our language and it's required that it be in our language, so you have to leave. I said, I came 6,000 miles to be here and I'm not leaving. They talked for a minute and said, get an interpreter. They brought in a sweet young lady who happened to watch Sons of Anarchy. I've never seen Sons of Anarchy, but apparently I look like I should be on it. I'm a little frightened that y'all know what that is. And God made favor there. And we've enjoyed favor ever since that moment. But it took standing in a room alone with four men, slamming my hand down on the table and saying, I am not leaving. If the body of Christ will face up to the loss that we are destined for, we will begin to see the gains that Jesus promised. Can you say amen to that? By the way, in the second day of battle... They lost 18,000 men. On day one, 22,000. On day two, 18,000. Do you know what they were doing between day one and day two? Oh my God, what, what happened? Did I do something wrong? Lord, why have I lost your favor? You know what he said? Go back out tomorrow. You didn't do something wrong to suffer loss. In fact, it might be that you're doing something very, very right. You know, when my friends get squirrely on me, when my family starts hurling insults at me, when every demoniac that we've ever thrown out of this church begins leaving me voicemails, it's not a sign that I'm doing something wrong. Might be that I'm doing something very right. If you become dangerous to the enemy, he will find new and inventive ways to try to discourage you. If you just own up to the fact that you've already lost everything in Christ, then you can't have fear of losing anything. There's only souls to be gained. Oh, it's so easy to amen that. But do you live that way, saint? See, I know you. You know me. We eat in each other's home. Do you really live that way? 
Say, oh yeah, pastor, I live that way. Then why do you spend an entire evening fighting with your wife and children about something as carnal as where you should eat? See, we don't have time for this stuff. The man at war doesn't stop to address the dogs barking along the way. We're men on a mission. If you can't give up your favorite restaurant, how are you going to give up your life for Christ? The very first thing that you experience loss in is the loss of your rights. You experience the loss of your preferences, the loss of your comforts, and all becomes about the mission. I just don't like the way he said that to me. I don't like the way I said it either. But I'm moving forward. What are you doing? It was the third day. When they finally had a positive outcome. In the third day, Israel killed more Benjamites. But it took three days before they saw anything positive. Do you know how many Americans died in World War II? We had 670,000 wounded. The lowest estimate of Americans killed was 290,000. And there were 130,000 prisoners of war. Does that mean it wasn't worth it? I bet you could ask some individual families and they would say the price was too high. But as a people, what are you willing to do to stop Hitler? As a people, what are you willing to do to make sure that you don't live under German tyranny? Maybe this crowd's too young to understand this, but I just came from the Holocaust Museum, Yad Vashem. I tell you, they're not too, too young to understand. They march their high school seniors through that and say, if you are not willing to fight, this is what happens. What if we're talking about something worse than Nazism? What if we're talking about something worse than a totalitarian dictator? What if we're talking about satanic oppression that damns men's souls? Been in places here recently where the Azan towers over every other thing. Even the clubs. <laughs> You're Americans? Hey, disco. <laughs> no, we don't disco. In fact, nobody in America discos. Do you know how gay you... Uh, whatever. <laughs> They turn off their music when the azan comes on. Even the nightclubs submit to Islam. They say, out of respect. Nobody shows Jesus Christ that kind of respect. Of course, Jesus Christ won't cut your head off. An interesting time that we live in. And I'm asking you, the sheep that God has entrusted to us, to recognize something. It's bigger than your personal preferences. It's bigger than your relationship choices. It's bigger than your friendships. There are people that are dying and going to hell all around us. And they are our responsibility. Do you care? Do you care? Do you care? Let's prove it. Let's put feet to our faith. Let's embrace the inevitable loss and let's do it with joy unspeakable. When you're willing to endure 22,000 dying the first day, 18,000 dying the next day, maybe it speaks a message. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. In 2 Corinthians 4,
Listen to these familiar words and tell me that they don't embrace loss and show its point. In verse 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. He is speaking about loss all around him all of the time, but the loss hasn't defined him. All the loss has done is proved the sincerity and tenacity of his faith. See, when you experience loss for the kingdom and you keep going, maybe the day after you get a $250,000 judgment against you, do you know that I could buy the entire building for that? I don't even want to talk about the absurdity of the enemy sometimes. Uh, if it was anything over about $20, I didn't have it. So um, it didn't matter. But let me say this. What you endure for the sake of the gospel and you keep going says what you think of the gospel. I can hear it today and tell you my closest relatives have turned their back on the gospel, but I kept going. I know what it is to lose friends sons and daughters in the faith and I keep going I've watched the defection of elders the splitting of churches but I am still going when you experience loss for the kingdom and you keep going it says something about you when you experience loss in the kingdom and you say God is not fair and how could he let this happen to me you showed that you are not in the kingdom could it get any clearer than that Oh man, let me show you what is at stake. Is that okay? That way, you, that, that way you'll know why I'm preaching what I'm preaching. Our life is a call to loss that others might gain. You remember the parable in Luke 16? This is, this is one that nobody understands. So if nothing else happens today, you're going to leave understanding a parable nobody else does. If I never get to the revelation I want to drop on you about Isaac and Ishmael, In Genesis 21, if I can't make it that far preaching today, at least in Luke 16, you'll find something that you probably never understood. In Luke 16, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be a manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what will I do now? My master is taking away my job. I I am not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will come and welcome me into their houses. You don't know who's stupider. The manager who's being called to account or the one that warned him he was about to fire him. Man, if you got to fire somebody, just do it. Just, Just do it. That's not what this parable is teaching, though. We are men who are called to lose this world, to lose our lives, to lose every attachment in it. And if you know that you are going to lose everything anyway, then whatever you have, you use for the benefit of the life that is going to come. That's exactly what this worldly guy did. This worldly guy said, hey, you owe my master a lot. A thousand bushels, let's make it eight. You owe 1,200 bushels, we'll make it a thousand. 
And that way he would be welcomed into their homes. You know what Jesus' comment in this chapter is? The people of the world are wiser in dealing with their own than the people of the kingdom. He goes on to say, I tell you the truth, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. And people go, how could Jesus say that? They don't understand him. If you understood that you were called to loss anyway, that you were not going to retain anything anyway, then everything that you had, you would use for the benefit of the world to come. Say world to come. The Jews call that olam haba, the world to come. On that note, let us go to Genesis 21. In Genesis 21, God began to deal with me in a hostel in uh, Turkey. And uh, it was disco music going all night. The brothers found a more divine means of consumption for grain than just oatmeal. And uh, we're sitting around reading the word and I'm just overwhelmed with the truth of the gospel that had been shown to me in 2010. And I just... uh, I don't know. It's like God gave a baby a pearl and I didn't know what to do with it. So I preached about it. Everybody cheered. They thought the sermon title was funny. It got shared around a lot and then we didn't, didn't do anything with it. Like, we didn't do nothing. It was... And I became embarrassed that I've known this for seven years. I haven't done anything with it. And we decided that we were going to do something with it. Are you ready? This is Genesis 21, verse 8. The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abram held a great feast. But Sarah saw the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abram, get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his... We read about Isaac... In Ishmael, And when we hear Ishmael, we are so trained to think negatively of Ishmael that we miss the truth of this verse. Verse 11 says, The matter distressed Abraham greatly. Is the Bible true or not? Why did it distress him? Because he's raised him as his son. He's clearly called his son here. And let's just get real. Who's the first person that Abraham had a child with? Hagar. Do you really think he felt nothing for her? That's a nice fantasy, ladies. I guarantee you he felt something for the woman that bore him children. It distressed him because he was going to have to send away his son and his son's mother. We read and we say, well, Ishmael, man, that's the 12 Arab nations. Ishmael. Ishmael is a work of the flesh. Ishmael, we preach sermons about it. It was also a person, a real person, somebody whom God cared for. It distressed Abraham to send Ishmael away. That verse began hitting my heart, thumping my heart, because I've been taught to love Isaac. I've not been taught to love Ishmael. But God said to him, do not be distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also because he is your... There's a promise given to Ishmael that he would become a nation. The same kind of promise that was given to Isaac, that he would become a nation. 
Early the next morning, Abram took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He sat them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of... When I got to Israel, uh, Justin Treister was in Beersheba. Uh, we had to drive to meet in Hebron. Uh, but he was physically in Beersheba. Interesting thing about Beersheba. It's named in this 21st chapter right here. He's in the desert of Beersheba. Everybody can see that, right? But the name's not actually given to the desert for many years later. This is an example of a man who's writing, and in the time that he's writing, it's called the desert of Beersheba. But when Ishmael is there, it has no name. Does that make sense? When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. How a mother would cry and mourn for her child she thought was going to die. God heard the boy crying. Who did God hear crying? Not the woman. He heard the boy crying. Is that interesting? God's concern was for Ishmael. He heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, I don't know whether this strikes the same chord with you. And I preached too long about other things to go and read it for you. But in Exodus 2, God says, I have heard the Israelites crying. But He wasn't speaking to the Israelites. He was speaking to Moses. See, God said, I hear them and I'm concerned about them, so I'm sending you. And here He hears Ishmael and He's concerned about Ishmael, so He's doing something in Hagar. Does that make sense? You beginning to see that parallel? Okay. God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. That is almost identical to what God said to Moses. He said, I have heard them crying and I am concerned about them. So I have come down to raise them up. Go, I am sending you. That's a direct quote uh, from Exodus, the third chapter. I said two earlier. It's actually three. God is concerned about Ishmael. So he makes sure that Hagar is there. But something has to happen with Hagar first. Verse 19, then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. The well was already there. God didn't, didn't dig it. God didn't uh, do anything other than open her eyes. They were in a desert that would later be named Beersheba and there's a certain well there and God opens her eyes because he's concerned about Ishmael. Now pick up. And verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me in the country where you are living as an alien the same kindness I have shown to you. Abraham said, I swear it. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about... What did he complain about? 
a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me. I only heard about it only today. So Abram brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a treaty. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock. Say seven ewe. Seven ewe ewe lambs. There is no covenant like this before it in the Bible. There is no covenant like this after it in the Bible. There is no time anywhere in the Bible ever where seven ewe lambs are chosen. Other than this time, it is a unique covenant based on the sacrifice of a perfect lamb. What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you have set apart by themselves? Even Abimelech knew that something was strange about this. This is simply not done. Because if you kill seven females like this, you're killing all of their offspring. Does that make sense to you? It's costly. A costly sacrifice of the lamb. One that had never been done before and would never be repeated again. Are you beginning to get where I'm going? He replied, except these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well, so that the place was called Beersheba, because the two men swore an oath there. This is when the well is named. But the well was actually discovered by Hagar, whose eyes were opened in the desert of Beersheba. Do you know what this means, friends? This means that if this well figuratively represented salvation... Ishmael was drinking from it before Isaac even knew it existed. God has always been concerned about the Gentile and the Jew. In fact, Adam was not a Jew. And God loved him. Noah, not a Jew. And God loved him. Ham, Shem, Japheth, not Jews. And God loved him. We don't even have the word Hebrew in the Bible till Genesis 14. That's more than 2,000 years into man's history. Judaism didn't exist. And yet salvation is from the Jews. So how do you reconcile those two things? Abraham had two sons that were both loved by Abraham and loved by God. But only one son would mark the way to salvation. Only one would have his name on the well, even though the well was intended for both sons. Always. Look at what Abraham does. After the treaty had been made at Beersheba... Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. A tamarisk is a tree that is evergreen year-round. In season and out of season, there would be an eternal marker by this well. That means well of the seven. The well that marked the perfect sacrifice of the lamb. Never done before and never to be repeated again. The well that Isaac would guard, but Ishmael was destined for as well. And there he called upon the name of the Lord, the eternal God. Say the eternal God. The eternal God. We, we read this eternal God. In Hebrew, that is not quite what it says. It's, it's, it's a related thing, and that's why it's translated that way. In Hebrew, it's El for God, meaning that strong shepherd, El Olam, the world to come. He's the God of the world to come. Now, the reason I've been talking to you about loss, the reason that we're here in Genesis 21, is God has always cared more, always cared equally, I should say, 
about those on the other side of the world that are not marking his covenant yet, that don't know about his covenant yet. He always wanted them to drink from the well. He simply had to choose a people to mark the way to salvation, a people that would testify about the perfect sacrifice of the Lamb. The goal was always that all men would have access to this well, but only one nation was guarded with trusting the, uh, in, entrusted with guarding the covenants, and that was Israel. That's why in Genesis 22, God says, take your son, your only son. There was only one through whom salvation would come. You can read about this all over the Bible. In John 4, your people say that we worship on this mountain, my people say on that mountain, and Jesus looked right at the Samaritan woman and said, salvation is from the Jew." The Jewish story, the Jewish Bible, the Jewish apostles have shown us the way to be saved. But the reason they were custodians of the gospel is God always wanted you to be saved. Now that you have become a custodian, entrusted with the eternal message, you have a choice before you. Do you care about the Ishmaels that are dying in the desert? Can you hear them crying? Or... Like one wicked relative told me, those people get what they deserve. What would happen to you if you got what you deserved? I want to talk to you about loss in the remaining three minutes. Could we put 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 4, on the screen? Uh, that's six four, and uh, I'm I'm sorry, you got it right. Six four, you're doing better than I am, Susan. Hey, Susan bought me this shirt. Does it look all right? I now have more than one shirt. Second Corinthians six four, rather as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, in hardships, and in distresses. In beatings, imprisonments, riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and in hunger. In purity, understanding, patience, and kindness. In the Holy Spirit and in sincere love. In truthful speech and in the power of God. With weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. Through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report. Genuine yet regarded as impostors. Known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Do you hear the call to loss? See, when you stand in Kilis or you stand in Gaziantep or you stand on the east side of Jerusalem where Muslim Children broke out our windows, bloodied Nick's neck as he protected his wife and children. There is a question that the people have to ask. If they know that there's inherent risk for you being there, if they know that it could cost you your life for being there, then they're stuck on the other side of that conversation going, why would he come here? And they don't know what to do with that. They don't know what to do with the people who are willing to suffer loss because you believe they are lost. They don't know what to do with it. It's so befuddling to them that they don't know whether to jail you or celebrate you. It's so confusing to them that they don't know whether they should ridicule you or join you. 
And they're meant to be confronted with that truth. I could die for standing here talking to you. And I came anyway. Do you know why? God has heard you crying. And he wants to open your eyes to a well of water. I know about it because Abraham marked it. I'm working for a world that is to come, not the one that is now. And I want you to participate in it with me. And if only one came from every trip, well, 22,000 Israelites gave their life because one Benjamite's concubine got, got abused. How are we, who are we to say that that one is not worth it? To him, the sacrifice is worth it. <coughs> And who knows what will come from the other lives that we touched. What it was to debate with young Muslim men. You know, hey, you have a sister? Yes, I have a sister. Do you want her to be somebody's fourth wife? Well, no. Well, you want four wives? Yes. But you don't want your sister to be somebody's fourth wife. To sit with a Muslim woman among men and say, what's so dangerous about her face that you have to cover it? What is so harmful about her identity, that you need to veil it, suddenly things become real for them. Or when talking with people and going, hey, I don't understand everything about your Quran. I don't know if I want to. I, I do know this. Jesus never killed anybody. Jesus never lied to anybody. Jesus gave His life for us. Did Muhammad kill people? Well, well yes. Did Muhammad take more than one wife? Yes. Did Muhammad teach us you could lie under some circumstances? Yes. Well, perhaps we should just consider the leaders of the religions. Those kids are scratching their heads. They've never been confronted with it. They've never heard it. They've heard of a Christian like you've heard of a unicorn. <coughs> but they've never seen one. You know, I met one other group of people there. They said they were Christians and they were obsessed with dress code. The thing that they were most compelled to talk about was whether or not women should cover their hair. I asked them why they wore ugly suspenders, suspenders in those ridiculous trousers, right? Oh, well, well, they want to talk about something else. Why, why are we only concerned about how the women dress? Did God call you to look this ridiculous? Ugly must be holy, right? Look, Hebrews 11.38 makes a statement about people who endured loss for the kingdom. It says the world was not worthy of them. Is the world worthy of you? This is like that old miniseries. I said, he's not fit to sleep with pigs. How do you respond to that? Yes, he is. I mean, there's... There's no way to win this, right? If you're not fit to sleep with pigs, that's pretty bad. If you are fit to sleep with pigs, that's pretty bad. The world was not worthy of them. Is the world worthy of you? Are you worthy of the world? Do you just get along and go along? Are you here to turn this upside down for the El Olam, the God of eternity, the world to come? I'm going to close with a quote from C.T. Studd. Y'all know I like him, right? It occurred to me that exactly 20 years 
after my first son was born. I have even less than when he was born. Um, I don't have a guaranteed job. I don't have health insurance. I don't have a retirement, a savings account, or even $200 in a checking account. And, um, and I'm now having another child. And then I at least had perfect credit. <laughs> Work really hard for that. And today I have a judgment I could never hope to pay back. And if I had the money, I still wouldn't pay it back. Got to tell the judge that, the opposing counsel, everybody. Because what is right is worth suffering loss for. And I found this quote from C.T. Studd today. You ready? The best training for the soldier of Christ is not merely a theological college. They always seem to turn out neat little sausages of varying lengths. Tied at each end without the glorious freedom a Christian ought to abound and rejoice in. You see, when in hand-to-hand conflict with the world and the devil, neat little biblical confectionery is like shooting lions with a pea shooter. One needs a man who will let himself go and deliver blows right and left as hard as he can hit. Trusting in the Holy Ghost, it's experience, not preaching, that hurts the devil and confounds the world. The training is not that of the school of the, of the, of schools, but of the market. It's the hot, free heart, not the balanced head that knocks the devil out. Nothing but a forked lightning Christian will count. A lost reputation is the best degree for Christ's service. It's not so much the degree of arts that is needed, but that of hearts, loyal and true, that love not their lives to shrink from death. Large, loving hearts, which will seek to save the lost multitudes rather than guard the 99 well-fed sheep in the British pen. We have a choice to make, church. We can protect what we have today. We can work to grow only what we have today. We can sit in satisfaction on the salvation that we have today. Or we can risk and experience loss in every direction that they might gain eternity. But I have already made up my mind. Because I've looked into the eyes of Muslim young men and they yearn for freedom the same way that we do. They just don't know how to find it. I have looked in the worst situations that you can put human beings in and found out they can be saved just the same as you and me and I am willing to suffer loss for it. I can no longer just sit and go my own way. And I'm asking you to do something. We're going to have to embrace as a noble character, a noble thing, when we experience loss for the gospel. I'm not talking about being beaten for stealing something. I'm talking about the loss that comes from fighting injustice. The loss that comes from standing up to a bully and you don't always win. But it is worth it. And you have that choice to make. There may be once or twice in your life you get a chance to be a hero. Man, as young men, we dream about those things, don't we? Every day you get to choose not to live like a pathetic coward. Let me tell you what a pathetic coward looks like. He is selfish. He is contentious. And above all, he is scared to death he will lose. But a soldier of Jesus Christ has already lost it all. And so he's willing to dare whatever he has left 
for the sake of Christ. Could you stand to your feet? We used to sing this church, this church. We used to sing this song in a church full of hypocrites and liars. Not a single person there that I had a personal relationship with believed a single word they were singing. It was, though none go with me, still I will follow. The cross before me, the world behind me. Oh, we sang it. We sang it almost every service and there was not a person there that did not have a desperate love affair with the world. As soon as Matthew and I fell in love with the Lord in a way that was outward, that was bold, that was contagious, we had no home there. I could sing that song for the rest of my life now and mean every minute of it. There is something deeply satisfying about being persecuted for Christ. That's why he said, you are blessed when you are reviled and persecuted. I want you to know the blessing that is yours in Christ. We are not pushing some agenda. We are not pushing a technique. And we sure don't want your women to cover their hair and you to wear ugly suspenders. Our goal is to see people set free in Christ. Especially the worst of the worst that don't believe there's any hope for them. But I'm also not foolish. And I know that the Stevens, the Reginas, the Parsons, I know we are not nearly enough. I know that. It's going to take generations of hundreds. And we're not all called to the same field, but we're all called to the field. Every one of us. And you'll never do there what you're not doing now. So this is a call to action from your pastor. I was gone for 37 days. And I'm back now. I'm asking if we might get something done for the Lord before the brief window of our life is closed. I'm asking you not to waste your life on frivolities in petty contentions. And dear God, don't waste it in friendly fire. Could you join the hands of your neighbors?